Major support for this podcast comes from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, conserving our wild things and wild places for over 25 years. Additional support comes from the Wildlife Restoration Program, which funds research on wild turkey habitat selection in the Texas oaks and prairies. The first time you're in the field and hear their unique call rise above the dawn chorus on an early spring morning, and then witness the showmanship of a raised tail, feathers fanned in a bold and dominant display, that moment will be etched indelibly into your memory. If you haven't guessed, we're talking turkey on the podcast. Wild turkeys. Restoring them, calling them in the field, and eating the ones you harvest. From Texas Parks and Wildlife, this is Under the Texas Sky, a podcast about nature and people and the connection they share. I'm Cecilia Nasty. Native to North America, wild turkeys once blanketed the landscape. Early historical records waxed poetic about the abundance of this magnificent bird that European colonists found upon their arrival to the New World. Sadly, as human populations climbed, wild turkey populations dwindled throughout their range. In the late 1800s, unregulated hunting and reduction of habitat diminished populations of wild turkeys across the landscape. By 1920, the number of Texas wild Rio Grande turkeys reached a low of 100,000 birds. Luckily, conservation efforts throughout the U.S. during the 20th century provide us with a restoration success story, especially in Texas. The Rio Grande is not the most dense subspecies of turkey in the country. But in Texas, it's definitely king. So we have probably five to 600,000 birds in Texas. We have some of the highest harvest rates in the country and some of the highest numbers of hunters in the country. We're a destination state for people to come shoot their Rio. Hi, I'm Jason Harden with Texas Parks and Wildlife. I'm the turkey program leader for the state of Texas. Wild turkeys have an ecosystem role to play as predator and prey. They feed on insects, seeds, and plants, helping to manage those populations. Wild turkey eggs, young poults, and adult birds become food for reptiles, larger birds, and mammals. It's the circle of life. Of course, hunters also have their sights set on turkey, especially in the spring. Preferred turkey habitat includes a water source, tall trees for roosting and escape from predators, and open pastures that provide food for adults and foraging opportunity for poults. Through harvest restrictions and restoration efforts, Rio Grande numbers have rebounded across the state. Today, this big bird struts its stuff from the Panhandle to the Rio Grande Valley. And he's located throughout the central part of the state. Generally, um, north of Austin, that would be the I-35 corridor and west, out to the edge of the Trans-Pecos, say the Pecos River. A few small island populations of Rios out in the Trans-Pecos, but that country's unhospitable. Turkey restoration efforts have been ongoing since the 1930s. Today, we find wild turkey populations in 223 of the 254 counties in Texas, with spring and fall hunting seasons in 187 of them. Watch it now. The Rio Grande is just one of three subspecies of wild turkey found in Texas. The other two are the Eastern and the Merriam. The eastern subspecies inhabits nearly the entire eastern half of the U.S. 
But it struggles in its range in East Texas with a population of only about 10,000 birds. Primarily in two populations in Northeast Texas along the Red River, north of Highway 82 for the most part, and then Southeast Texas around Jasper, Newton, Polk, Nacogdoches, and some of that country. And one thing that we're working on right now is trying to tie those populations together. So we're still doing eastern turkey restoration all these years later. Uh, we recently got some birds from Missouri and North Carolina, about 60 birds so far this year of an 80-bird go from one of our restoration sites. We'll touch on turkey restoration in a moment. Before that, I want to say, or have Jason Harden say, a few words about the final subspecies in our Texas turkey trio, the Merriam although the podcast will focus only on the Rio and Eastern. It's a mountainous bird that's found throughout the Colorado mountains, but we have a small population that would have come down from New Mexico into the Guadalupe Mountains. And actually, during the 1980s, we established a population in the Davis Mountains, and those birds are still there. We estimate we probably have about 500 of those individuals, based on some DNA work that was done through Sol Ross. The Davis Mountains have been surrounded by Rio Grands, and so now the Miriam, they've kind of been almost bred out of existence in that part of the state. The Rio Grande subspecies is breeding with the Miriam subspecies and creating a Mirio. And so now we have this hybrid bird out in that landscape. The Miriams was always just a real isolated island population. The Rio Grande turkey is definitely the king in Texas. And this king reigns over most of the state. Texas Parks and Wildlife and Partners trapped tens of thousands of Rio Grande turkeys over the decades. They were restocked to suitable habitats throughout the state, successfully restoring the bird to its original historic range. To ensure the continued success of the Rio, Jason Harden says that Parks and Wildlife is in the fourth year of a five-year statewide turkey banding study, which will help the ongoing management of Texas Rio populations. And we're putting bands on around 1,000-plus birds annually. And we'll look at that at an ecoregion scale, see what our harvest is. So far, it's been around 3%. Time will tell because these birds have long lives. If we can look at the harvest rate at an ecoregion scale based on this banding data, pair that up with our small game harvest survey, which is a survey that goes out to several thousand hunters every year, and we'll get an idea based on harvest, harvest rate, to what our densities are in those ecoregions. So if we see an increase in harvest rate in the future or a decrease in harvest, it's something that we can go out, try to make some adjustments to our regulation, our season timing to impact whatever fashion it may need to be impacted. If harvest rates go down, maybe we provide more opportunity for hunters. If they go up significantly, maybe we start pulling back on some of that liberal season structure. Restoration success has been harder to come by with the eastern subspecies. It's often been a case of two steps forward and one step back. Hardin says the agency attempted various strategies, including releasing pen-raised turkeys in that region. Probably for too long. We continued our pen-raised restoration efforts until 1979, where other states had walked away as early as 1959. So our restoration was probably delayed by about 20 years. Pen-raised birds lack the benefit of a parent's experience and guidance, such as how to avoid predation as well as other life skills that can only be passed down from adult to child. So when these pen-raised birds were released into the wild... It's hard to expect them to be anywhere near as successful. So it was something that we put a lot of time, money, and effort into. We failed, along with 99% of the other states and organizations that tried that approach. It's been peer-reviewed over and over again as something that just does not work. One key difference between the successful restoration of the Rio Grande and the restoration challenges with the eastern subspecies boils down to availability. 
When it comes to rios, the bird's range is statewide, so biologists can trap and relocate stock from within Texas. However, restoration of the eastern subspecies involves bringing birds to Texas from other parts of the U.S., which involves a cost. Everybody ready? This first group, let's go ahead, open that second flap, dump them, let them go. In 1979, we brought our first eastern wild turkeys over from Louisiana, put them in Tyler County. They did pretty good. In 1987, working with the National Wild Turkey Federation and our Making Tracks program, we started working with lots of states and bringing turkeys into East Texas, using what we referred to at the time as a block stocking approach. Working on a county-by-county county basis, biologists released 15 to 20 birds among 5 to 10 locations across a county at a cost of hundreds of dollars for each bird released, all of which is paid for with stamp dollars and at no cost to landowners. After working in a county for about two years, they'd move on. We were successful. Today we have about 13 counties with an open season. But when you consider we stocked about 59 counties, we're nowhere near successful we'd lie. In the mid-1990s, Dr. Raul Lopez, currently with the Natural Resource Institute at Texas A&M, found Texas turkey stocking could be improved in two ways. One, by releasing 70 to 80 birds at a time, called super stocking, and two, by releasing them into more suitable habitat. So we funded some research in 2007 through Stephen F. Boston, and we tried to do empirical testing of Dr. Lopez's superstocking model. It was just a mathematical model up to that point, so through SFA we released 80 birds per site at four sites in East Texas. And one thing we noticed that by year two, we were seeing survival and recruitment relative to other southeastern states with established populations. So we felt like we had something to work with. But they still had to determine how to best evaluate turkey habitat. So we went back to the drawing board. So from 2009 until 2013, we developed a habitat suitability index. So just a way to score the, the habitat. Uh, we took less consideration on the size of the property or the number of lock gates and how many species of oak you had and more about what does the vegetation look like? Can I see through the woods? Do I have brood-bearing cover? Do I have grasses and weeds that are boot to knee high? Do I have low-growing woody cover to provide nesting habitat? and put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, so we started evaluating habitat in 2013 and got back into the restoration business in 2014. Over the last six years, Texas Parks and Wildlife has released more than 750 eastern wild turkeys at nine sites. We've seen production at every site and we're seeing recruitment. So we're very excited about the process so far. We think we're going to have some success with that. We're developing some focal landscapes because we can't just put turkeys everywhere. We don't want to create these island populations anymore. We want to create large, contiguous landscapes filled with turkeys. So we have our Natchez River Priority Landscape that goes from Angelina National Forest all the way up to Lake Palestine. And we have our Sulphur River Landscape that goes all the way from Cass County and White Oak Creek Wildlife Management Area over to Cooper Lake Wildlife Management Area. And our goal is to fill those landscapes with birds over time in the best habitat we can find so those areas can serve as source populations so over time they can distribute across the landscape and tie those populations together. And when these efforts are successful, then we, like our ancestors before us, will bear witness to the gift of vast populations of wild turkeys roaming Texas. Coming up, how to call turkeys during your spring hunt. But first, 
You're listening to Under the Texas Sky from Texas Parks and Wildlife. I'm your turkey-loving producer and host, Cecilia Nasty. Support from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation allows us to bring you stories from under the Texas sky. In fact, since 1991, the foundation has raised more than $190 million to conserve the lands, waters, and wildlife of our state. You can help by becoming a member. Find out how at wewillnotbetamed.org. Corn again. Puffing my feathers out, pecking on the ground. Come on, check me out. I'm strutting all around. Dangly noodle hangy thing growing off my face. Looking good, only thing to say is bloop, bloop, bloop. Hi, I'm Steve Hall. I'm the Hunter Education Coordinator with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And uh, we teach people how to be safe, responsible, knowledgeable, and involved in hunting and shooting practices. What were you doing and what was that in your mouth? Uh, This is a diaphragm turkey call and what I was doing was mimicking the sounds of a hen turkey. And in the wild, you know, the hen turkey in the springtime lets the gobblers know where she is and She's ready to be mated and lay on a clutch of eggs. It's spring turkey hunting season in Texas, and with lots of mature Rio Grande toms across their range, tenacious Texas hunters should have a good shot at a long beard this spring. Wildlife biologists with Texas Parks and Wildlife say beneficial weather conditions over fall and winter suggest a productive nesting season, which could make for challenging hunting ahead. One of the greatest thrills, some say the greatest thrill, is when you successfully call a tom to you by mimicking a hen. To lure in a big gobbler is kind of like a trophy or an award for a lot of turkey hunters. But truthfully, just calling in a uh, bachelor tom, we call them silent toms because they'll come in silent because if they make a sound, the big tom will kick their booty. Booty kicking aside, calling in an older, cagey gobbler offers hunters a challenge. It's kind of like a chess match, you know, because here's a gobbler, and as he's going around the woods with his harem, he's expecting you to come to him if you're a lone hen out there. <laughs> and so the chess match begins because you're, you're trying to lure him in to a lone hen when he already has all these other hens around him, and so it's just kind of a neat little game. By the way, only male turkeys gobble. Steve says biology drives tom turkeys to leave their harems to seek out these lone females. In the springtime, they're ready to mate, and they're going to mate with uh, several hens. And as they do, they have that biological urge to make sure that they have their biggest harem that they can support because you've you've got all these other young toms and young gobblers looking out to try to mate some of those hens too. And, of course, he's actively defending that harem. Well, here you have a lone hen talking over there. And the biology of it all is that every day that he breeds a hen, she goes and lays an egg into her to her nest. And then once the, the clutch is ready, she incubates them. So when she's incubating, she's sitting on her nest a longer period of time. And so the gobblers get a little lonely toward the end of that cycle. And as they get a little more lonely, they get a little more desperate to find some more hens out there because they're still ready to breed. 
And so is that a tip hidden in there as to when to go out and uh, turkey hunt? You know, wait until they start getting lonely farther into the season? Yes, there's a magical two weeks during the spring turkey season. And as you go across Texas from south to north, that two week changes. And uh, you can look on one of Texas Parks and Wildlife's apps to see when the high time is for turkey season in terms of those two weeks that the males or the toms are really receptive to calling and really receptive to luring them in. You have a choice when deciding how to call in a turkey. You can use friction calls, mouth calls, or natural voice. That's Steve Hall using his natural voice to imitate a gobble. And as you hear that in the darkness of a roost, you know, that's what gets your blood pumping as a hunter because you're, oh, there they are, you know. Now I know where you're at and I know how to position myself, hopefully for a clean kill later on. You might choose to imitate a gobble instead of a hen's cluck to try and fool dominant male turkeys that there's a newcomer in the vicinity that's going to put forth a challenge. Natural voice calling doesn't depend on anything but your innate ability and some practice. A mouth call may involve using a diaphragm, as Steve demonstrated earlier in this segment. Because turkeys have exceptional eyesight, the smallest movement can alert them to your presence. Natural voice and mouth calls allow hunters to remain nearly motionless while beckoning the birds. Not so with friction calls. Although those types of calls are effective, they may involve scraping a paddle against a hollow wooden chamber as in a box call, or dragging a peg across a slate surface with a slate call. Movements that when spotted by the sharp-eyed turkeys may cause the birds to flee. Hunters can also use locator calls to aggravate roosting toms into giving away their position. Locator calls include owl hoots, crow calls, coyote howls, peacock calls, as well as turkey gobbles. Locator calls are meant to induce a reflex gobble from a boss tom, and this provides hunters with a general idea of the roost site, which allows them to get into proper position before the sun comes up. It's not unusual for turkey hunters to take more than one type of call into the field. So I might have a box call on me, I might have a diaphragm call on me, and I'll have a slate call on me at the very least in terms of calls. And then I might have an owl call and a peacock call. I use a peacock for a roosting call. Those are about the different calls that you want with you when you're turkey hunting. Uh, make different little sounds because all the sounds of the turkeys are a little different here and there. And if you can match the boss gobbler, and that just might be the sound that really kind of turns him on to your location. Even if you'd rather shoot a turkey with a camera, instead of a shotgun, learning how to call them to you will give you the best shot possible. Hunters, meanwhile, should refer to the Outdoor Annual on the Texas Parks and Wildlife website or app for spring hunting locations, bag limits, and what to do post-harvest. This is Under the Texas Sky from Texas Parks and Wildlife. I'm Cecilia Nasty. We're not done talking turkey just yet. Once you harvest one of these birds, you don't have to wait until Thanksgiving to eat it. However, when you do eat it, to ensure that you end up with meat that is flavorsome and succulent, you need to know what age bird to harvest and then how to handle the bird in the field and in the kitchen. To help us understand best practices for this poultry, I put a call in to Susan Ebert. 
and I am a hunter, angler, forager, cookbook author who loves to work with wild game. Susan lives north of Houston with her husband, Shannon Tompkins, a reporter and columnist with the Houston Chronicle. Her cookbook is The Field-to-Table Cookbook, Gardening, Foraging, Fishing, and Hunting. Susan knows a thing or two or three or ten about hunting for and preparing wild turkey. The way that I start out is making sure that I've got a cooler full of ice in the back of the truck or nearby at camp. And then while my husband might be apt to be pursuing the wily ancient long beard with a 10 or 12 inch beard, I will hone in on the two to three year old birds, birds that are in young adulthood that are really in their prime as table fare as the old birds will tend to get really tough and stringy. Once you've bagged a bird, tag it immediately. And if it is an eastern turkey, it's mandatory to report your harvest. And you can do that with the Parks and Wildlife's My Hunt Harvest app for iPhone and Android. Now it's time to work quickly. The sooner you get your bird on ice, the less chance of spoilage. Before that, though, you gotta pluck it, a job best done outdoors as it does get messy. Turkey feathers actually come off really quite easily. Grab a handful, you pull in the direction that the feathers are going, which means you're much less likely to tear the flesh. Unless you got a clean head and neck shot, check the defeathered turkey for pellet wounds and remove any that you find from the flesh. I can tell you from experience it's not pleasant to bite down on one of those at dinner time. And if you're squeamish, you may want to say la 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 loudly for the next minute while Susan Ebert explains this next step, how to disembowel the fowl. Take off the bird's head and, for the time being, leave the neck on the turkey. And then go in through the rear cavity and pull out all of the entrails. Now, while you're doing that, make sure that you keep what I like to call the wobbly bits. Save the heart and the gizzard. And then save the liver. With the liver, all you need to do is open it up and pull the small greenish gallbladder out with a sharp knife. The gizzard, you want to open up the gizzard, remove the contents, and just pull off the inside lining. The heart doesn't need any special treatment. I keep those in a separate Ziploc bag. Then once you're back to turkey camp or where you've got a water source and you've got your ice, rinse the bird inside and outside thoroughly. Rinse off all your wobbly bits. I'll probably just put my little Ziploc bag of wobbly bits inside the turkey for safekeeping. I'll put the whole turkey, plucked and cleaned, inside a food-grade kitchen bag and put it at the bottom of a cooler and then cover the entire sealed bag with ice. When you get the bird home and start prepping it for cooking, this is the time when you remove its neck. When you remove the neck, you will notice that under the skin on the chest, A wild gobbler has what's called a breast sponge. And what it is is fat storage for that gobbler during breeding season. Gobblers may have up to 10% of their entire body weight in that breast sponge. Now, it's very weird-looking tissue, and some people will cut it off and throw it away. And I say, oh, no, no, no. Leave that breast sponge on the turkey breast because what you have is a built-in fat blanket 
to keep that meat moist while it's cooking. It'll shrink substantially during the cooking process. You can discard it afterwards before you start carving. Susan Ebert says the difference in flavor between the meat of a wild turkey and that of a domestic bird is like the difference you experience between a store-bought tomato and a tomato just picked from your own garden. It tastes like what it is, just better. With wild turkey, there is a deep, nutty, rich flavor you just don't get with domestic grocery store birds. Now, aside from the breast sponge, turkeys lack fat, and fat helps to keep meat succulent during the cooking process. So Susan says the following technique can help your wild turkey retain moisture. What I like to do with my turkeys is to brine them for 24 to 48 hours. Your brine can be as simple as a couple gallons of water with a cup of kosher salt and a cup of brown sugar in it. You can add allspice, cloves, cinnamon stick, sage, thyme, whatever appeals to you to flavor that brine. Low and slow is the way to cook a wild turkey, and Susan prefers using a smoker for this task, although she says an oven-roasted spatchcocked bird is also tasty. Now, if you do brine the bird, let it air dry until it's just tacky to the touch. Susan uses fruit wood to smoke the birds and puts more than water in the water pan. I'll use half organic apple juice, half water, throw in some aromatics, sage, thyme, oregano, maybe some allspice and black pepper and cinnamon stick all crushed up, and not let the temperature get over 225 degrees. Once the internal temperature of the turkey reaches 160 degrees Fahrenheit, take it out of the smoker and tent it with aluminum foil. The turkey will continue to cook off the heat and reach a safe internal temperature of 165 degrees. Then let it rest for 20 minutes before carving. You'll be glad you didn't wait until Thanksgiving to bite into this bird. The one thing that I would add that we always look forward to is all the little bits that are left over get spiced up with raisins and almonds added and make wonderful little empanadas that go in our pockets next time we go afield or, hey, even on our way to work sometimes. Sounds good to me. Didn't I tell you that Susan Ebert knows her way around a wild turkey? Her cookbook is the field-to-table cookbook, Gardening, Foraging, Fishing, and Hunting. Remember Jason Harden from earlier in the podcast? Well, he takes his daughter Lindsay and son Marshall spring turkey hunting with him. And he spoke with them about their experience in the field for our Shout Out to the Wild segment. So, Lindsay, how old are you? Thirteen. What's your favorite part about turkey hunting? Um, I really like the excitement of it and how you get to go outside and it's fun. <laughs> so, have you killed a turkey before? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that time when you got the bird? When I got my first bird, I remember that I was in the stand and we were about to leave, I believe, because it had been a while. And then out of the corner of the stand, we saw a turkey just walking up a pretty big one and he came up to our decoy bird and like started like ruffling around it and then I shot him. Then you shot him. (laughs) Were you pretty excited? Yeah. And then uh, brought it home. What do we do with the tail fan? Oh it's in my room. It's right behind me at the moment. All right thank you. Welcome. Marshall how old are you? 
I'm nine. Tell me what you think about turkey hunting. It is awesome. It is cool that you can shoot turkeys and keep their tails on their wall, well, their fans. And one of my favorite things to do because I actually get to be the one who shoots. How many turkey hunts have you been on? Can you remember? Four. Been on four? Mm-hmm. And how many turkeys have you taken? Two. Two? What was your favorite turkey hunt? My fourth one because that was my biggest. That was your biggest turkey? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that hunt? Oh, well, actually, we slept in our truck. Yeah. Well, actually, Mommy's car. Mommy's forerunner. Uh-huh. Was that comfortable? Um, medium. Medium. <laughs> Actually, I think after we did that, when I woke up, we went to the place with the gun, got on the pop-up line, and mm-hmm. then waited. We were right by their nesting ground on a tree, by a tree. Where they were roosting? Uh-huh. We got pretty close to their roost, huh? Yeah. And also, whenever they got off, there were just a ton in front of us. Yep. It's a ton. And whenever I shot one, it was actually pretty far away, but I got a great shot. And make sure you shoot in the middle of the net, because the bullets spread out. Yep. Shotgun shells. So, you might shoot one if you do this. Thanks for the advice, Marshall. And thank you, Jason, for wrangling your kiddos for the podcast. Check out the Outdoor Annual on the Texas Parks and Wildlife website or app to see in which county spring turkey hunting is still underway. Also, if you want to share your thoughts about the outdoors on our Shout Out to the Wild segment, visit underthetexasky.org and click on the Get Involved link on the menu bar. And so we come to the end of another podcast. Under the Texas Sky is a production of Texas Parks and Wildlife and is available for streaming or download at underthetexasky.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We record at the Block House in Austin, Texas. Joel Block does our sound design. My thanks to colleague Karen Loke for providing audio from an East Texas turkey release. And we used the Turkey Bird song by Haywood Banks with permission from the artist. I'm your producer and host, Cecilia Nasty, reminding you that life's better outside when you're under the Texas sky. Major support for this podcast comes from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, conserving our wild things and wild places for over 25 years. Additional support comes from the Wildlife Restoration Program, which funds research on wild turkey habitat selection in the Texas oaks and prairies. Join us again next time for Under the Texas Sky. 